everyone, and welcome to Fine Vines and Wine. I'm your host, Karis Pixie, and each week I'll be giving you all an insight into the behind the scenes of our favorite beverage, wine. I'd love for you to use this podcast platform as a winery guide for your next weekend away, exploring everything Australia has to offer. You never know, you might discover a new spot or two to visit. I acknowledge the Cadigal and the Palawa people, traditional custodians of the land that we recorded today's podcast episode on. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the nation. On today's episode, I'm joined by Joe Holyman, winemaker and owner of Tasmania's Stony Rise. Welcome, Joe, and thank you for joining me. How has your week been? Thanks for having me initially. Um, oh, we've had a good week so far. It's only Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, just working through the week. Let's kick it off with some questions. What has been your defining wine moment as a winemaker and also as the owner of Stony Rise? Oh, that's a very length. That's a hard one to. Uh, knuckle down but um i guess uh no defining moment but i i grew up around wine and i saw the pleasure it brought to my parents and their friends and the way that everything was always different every time we talked about it there was something to learn and i guess that's is what piqued my interest i'm a little bit uh, I, I like to be entertained. So the, the uh, attraction to wine for me was the fact that it was never going to be the same every year or there was always something out there that I could learn about to make me have better knowledge of the industry. I love that, yeah. Every sort of, I guess I have two wines from um, a winery near Goulburn and their 2000, I was looking at it the other day and their 2015 Rosé Shiraz is super dark, but then their 2020 was really light and it's just crazy that that same grape variety over the years can just change so much. Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. And it's, you know, it's all... Um, comes down to nature and that's the most exciting thing about it is that whilst we all have to deal with it as farmers um, we're dealing with mother nature which uh, is something we can never control quite a few vintages recently have been over the last sort of five or six years have been affected in some parts um, it's still it's an ongoing issue for all of us around the country and obviously you know when you look at California and South Africa uh, come to mind recently that have all had awful bushfires um, during yeah. that growing season and it's just I don't think it's going to get any better in a hurry but as we saw in the Adelaide Hills recently you can you know if the fire's you know strong enough for you there's not much you can do at all and it's just about uh, I guess you know my first priority is my family well my wife might disagree but the vineyard comes second um, yeah so as long as my family are healthy, I'm willing to give up a little bit of vineyard. Yes, no, I totally agree. Um, it sounds like you've been working in wine for a while. How long has it actually been? Uh, in in a in a real job sense, um, I started working for Negotiants Australia, part of the uh, S Smith and Son Group, in 1994, I like to say, because it makes it seem older. Yeah, and obviously prior to that, I'd worked part-time in bottle shops and restaurants and worked in my little family vineyard and done some other vineyard work around South Australia. So it sort of goes back a little bit further than that, but that's my first real wine industry job. What's your most memorable moment that you've experienced during your wine journey? I look, to be honest, there's too many. Um, I tend to work on the fact that you know, the best glass of wine I've ever had is the one I'm having at the moment. Not that I'm having one at the moment. It's a bit early even for me. But there's been some – I've been fortunate enough in my time 
in the wine industry to do some amazing things and visit some amazing people, have some amazing dinners in fancy restaurants. and But it all comes back down to how you enjoy the moment, I think, rather than any particular moment. And that's what last week's guest said as well. So <laughs> yeah. definitely all about the moment and experiencing that too yeah i think definitely a bottle can be amazing but it's uh, when you open it it's if you open it with the right people in the right environment and have that sort of memory associated with it then it makes it even more special as well yeah i think i i could tell you about you know my you know my first real defining wine memory and, and like quite a few other people I've heard on podcasts recently is the first time I ever tried Shadow with Kem and I was about 14 and got a little sip. My dad had bought a bottle with some friends and I got a tiny little sip and I remember that distinctly but I wouldn't say it was at my best moment or my worst moment it's just one that or, you know the first one that sticks in my mind. Yeah, I feel like my I think my first probably not taste of wine, I'd say, was probably my first taste of alcohol was probably stealing gin from my dad's um, dad's alcohol cabinet when I was 15, 16 and taking it out with my friends. And I still don't like gin to this day. So must have yeah. definitely done something. Yeah, I'm not sure about this one. It, it, it amazes me that people can have such an experience that, uh, um, that puts them off something. I've you know done some damage to myself on just about every kind of alcohol there is but nothing's ever stopped you know the, the only thing I probably don't drink anymore um, which I drank a lot of when I was young is Bundaberg rum but I'll still we still normally have at least one of those during harvest so I don't really like it but it hasn't ever stopped me drinking it. I don't think I've ever had that with wine though so oh, that's just, good. The, just the spirits just not the wine. So you opened a new cellar door in 2020. Congratulations, because 2020 was definitely a bit of a year. Um, yeah. How is that going and have you had to adapt to any new challenges? Oh, there's a couple of answers to that, I guess. The first one is I, I, I have been amused by everyone's, you know, writing off of 2020 like yes. like coronavirus was going to weigh, go away on the 1st of January. <laughs> It hasn't actually gone away. Um, no. So I'm not sure that 2021 is going to be that much better. Um, uh, look, we the building was finished pretty much um, at Christmas time last year and there was a few jobs to do that we slowly got done and then obviously COVID hit. Um, we, we had a cellar door which was part of our house um, and yeah. I, my wife worked out, I think, when COVID first hit with the four-square-metre rule, um, I think we could get half a person in it, So, and that didn't include someone serving them. So it's a pretty small space. Yeah. Um, so there was no point opening, um, and, uh, you know, there was nowhere to sit. So when you could open again, there was no sit-down space because mm. everyone had to sit down to drink um, or taste. Um, so we just sort of made sure we got the building. Well, it's still probably ninety five percent finished, but it's it's uh, and we just gave it a go. It was um, you know in in a funny sort of way. I think in Tasmania we've been very lucky and haven't suffered the lockdowns and the the up and downs um, yeah. of many other states. And I feel very sorry for all my friends in those places. You know the Tasmanian people were fantastic. We're pretty well known for. Tasmanians love travelling around Tasmania when no one else is around. So um, they took a, took advantage of it and in a weird sort of way I think we were probably too late because I think most of the Tasmanians had done a lot of their travelling. 
but it's been very well supported by the locals and the, the tourists that have been here. And, look, I think we we had to open it. We couldn't sort of go, well, um, so because of COVID we won't open because that's yeah. not, not doing anyone any favours. And I think, you know, it, it, with people so keen to travel and not to be able to go overseas, you know, we the Tasmanians especially because it's a bit of a hot spot, we need to offer people things to do. Um, so there was a bit of sort of all of that involved in opening, um, but we just needed to open it. Was we, we were lucky enough to be in a position where we weren't locked up and there were people moving around and we've had some great support from everyone. I feel like as well, especially, I've really enjoyed, even though I, I'm originally from England, so nice. normally I go back to England. Um, yes, very obvious. Normally mm. I go back um, every summer for a couple of months and that's kind of like my big travel stint. But um, I've actually really enjoyed exploring more of Australia. Yeah. Going to places that I hadn't maybe thought of going to or probably wouldn't have had time to go to. So it's actually been quite nice, like rediscovering new parts, which I think a lot of people, I think a lot of um, Australians are finding out and getting to experience stuff that they normally would have passed over to go to Europe or something like that. So it's kind of like, it's like a double-edged sword. Like it's, it's kind of sucked, but it's also been good, I think, for the hospitality industry and the tourism industry in Australia when it's not been locked down. Oh, totally. And I think even before the real lockdown, so maybe in uh, you know late February, early March last year, we, we had when COVID had sort of just started and it was, you know, at the time probably considered a, something that was happening overseas and not in Australia so much. We had quite a few people travelling around Tasmania and instead of having their one or two months overseas, they were doing that back then. So I think uh, I was talking to my father the other day, and he tells me it's the first it's the first time he hasn't been outside Tasmania in sixty five years. Oh wow! <laughs> and, That's uh, amazing. Yeah, and I uh, it's the first time I haven't been outside of Tasmania. Well, since I was about fourteen, so thirty six years. Oh wow, that's that's actually crazy. Right. It's a bit weird for my wife. She's stuck with me at the moment. I'm not travelling, <laughs> selling wine, or doing vintage or something. So, yeah, that it's the way it is. And uh, as I said earlier, I, it, it's not changing in a hurry. I don't think. No, I definitely don't think so. I agree with that. Um, going off that a little bit, what do you think the wine industry will see more or less of in 2021? Mm. We might see. Definitely agree. Um, mm. So, as well as having a cellar door, you also offer a bar, takeaway, bottle o, and sell homemade French onion dip, which sounds delicious. Um, do you think, with the future of travel and COVID so up in the air, um, that having multiple revenue options is the way forward for a successful winery or cellar door? Um, Sorry, that was a long question. Uh, no, uh, that's fine. Uh, to try and break it down a little bit, when we We've always discussed the idea that if we built a cellar door, we didn't want it to be like a cellar door. It's not necessarily, it wasn't necessarily all about the revenue options. Um, there was a couple of things that led us towards um, the, the what we're doing with selling other people's wines, um, having some beers, doing a little food obviously goes is a natural cellar door thing and we never had that before. So we had to include that. A couple of reasons we wanted to do it a bit differently. One was you know, if I lived in a near a wine region and they had an awesome restaurant, which most wine regions do, in a in a particular winery, mm. I, it's always frustrated me that I could 
the people put so much time and effort into these fantastic restaurants, but yeah. that, but then you only serve your own wine, which mm. if I want to go to your restaurant once a month in that winery, I don't really want to drink your wine once a month. And so that was part of the idea that, and, and because we're 20 minutes from Launceston in a reasonably off the beaten track part of the Tamer River, um, we want it's sort of a we wanted it to be a local hangout, so it was a bit of a community thing, and and that's the same reason. If we have friends that want to come locally, you know, once a month, and they don't want to drink our wine, then I don't mind, but yeah. I'm ha- happy for them to use the space, and that's really okay. that's really what it was all about. So there was the two aspects to it, um, and obviously to do what we did, we had to get a general license, which meant that we also had takeaway. We don't really open it as a bottle shop as such, but any of the wines we have available, you can take away. Oh, okay, that's all awesome. the all the non-alcoholic drinks, or the you know beers or whatever. So, do you source the beers and the non-alcoholic drinks um, locally in Tasmania as well? Uh, we no, no. So the concept of the wine list is well, the non-alcoholic beers are the sober beers from Queensland, we, native ingredient craft beers, non-alcoholic. And then we've got some Australian-made tonic and lemonade, and um, but we do seed lipping cans. Oh, okay, yes, I like seed lip. Yeah. So, um, and then even down to the Bickford's black currant cordial that is handy to have in the fridge for when the kids, mm-hmm. got, the parents have got children with them if they don't want something else. And that obviously comes from South Australia. And then the wine list side of it was actually I didn't want to upset any local Tasmanian producers. So, so I took the stand that we wouldn't have any other Tasmanian producers on the list. Yeah, I like that because then I guess if you want to try those other Tasmanian wines and you have to go and visit their establishments. Yeah, and I just didn't want, to be honest, I, I didn't want everyone saying, oh, how come you got their wine on and not mine or here, yeah, here, <laughs> here try this, you should put it on your list and all that sort of stuff. It just took it completely out, even down to the fact, and probably the only downfall of it, I think, is we're not showcasing Tasmanian sparkling wine, um, but you can have a glass of champagne if you like. I think we were talking, because I used to have another podcast, and we interviewed the sommelier at Nomad, and he said that they tried to start with a fully Aussie wine list, but people would come in, and if they wanted to celebrate, they didn't want a glass of Australian sparkling, they wanted a glass of champagne, because it's that connotation that comes with that. So it's quite nice to have a champagne on the list as well. Yeah, and it just as I say, it's the same thing. I mean, we could do an individual producer from Tasmania for a month each, you know, to get through twelve a year. There's always still going to be someone who says, "Why have you got that on, not that?" And we just figured that this was the best way to do it. Whereas this way, I'm, you know, it's a bit of a pity, as I say, because I mean, it, we do make arguably the well, some of the best sparkling wines in the world, but mm. and it's a pity not to showcase them. But it, it's just, uh, and then the rest of the list is just really. There's a few friends from the mainland. Um, there's a lot of the idea part of the concept was that we would showcase wines from other regions around the world that are similar. So, you know, there's Burgundy for Pinot and Chardonnay. Um, there's Oregon. There's uh, some New Zealand stuff. Oh, awesome. And then we've got, um, you know, some Austrian Grunewald Lena because we grow Grunewald Lena. I'm going to ask you about that. I've never actually heard of that. What sort of grape variety is it? What what's it similar to? If it's similar to anything, mm, it's a uh, it's very similar. But it's 
It's obvious. It's the most widely grown variety in Austria. Okay. Um, and it's uh, I as a as a default reaction, I would tell people that it's a little bit like a cross between Pinot Gris and Riesling. Okay. Um, depending on how you make it, so you know texturally, it's got a bit of depth to it. Um, if they're you know let, left to ripen to higher alcohol, so you can become quite silky and mm-hmm. you know textural and but they all that retains its acidity very well like Riesling so you can have this sort of structure and acidity at the same time so that was and then you know there's we grow we're the only people in Tasmania that grow Trousseau so we we've got some Jura wines and wines we like to drink so that was also yeah. part of it that had to be the idea is that it's a bit of a, an opening into our life the food is stuff that we like to eat mainly locally sourced yeah um and then the wine list was all about, you know, this is what Lou and I drink at home, so why don't you have a go? Or, you know, if you're going to have Comte de cheese, then you really should be drinking Sauvignon or Vangin from the Jura to go with it because that's where the mm. cheese comes from. Yeah, and I guess then the flavour profiles match. Yeah, so that's really what was the idea of that. Um, you know, it's a bit like me putting my cellar on, you know, in the cellar door so that people know what we drink for us as people who, you know, eat and drink and go around. And one of the strangest comments that we I find that we get in cellar door is people find it really hard to believe that we really don't drink our wine. And I always reply to them, well, do you drink the same wine every day? And they go, That's no. That's a very good point. Go, <laughs> I've never thought about it like that. Oh, they go, no. And I say, well, why should I? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, we spend a lot of time making the wines and we've tasted and done the stuff a lot and every now and again we'll have a glass of something that's left over from cellar door but I don't run to the cellar door every day to grab a bottle of wine for dinner because that's not the way the wine industry works. Don't leave just yet. We'll be right back after this short break. Do you ever open a bottle of wine when you're hosting a party or just want a couple of glasses at home and for some reason you don't actually finish it? I'm definitely guilty of that and it's so frustrating seeing good wine go to waste. Luckily, I recently discovered the most perfect solution and I'm so excited to share it with you all. Today's episode is brought to you by WineSave, the all-natural wine preserver helping your open bottles of wine last longer and stay fresher so you can enjoy drinking them for weeks instead of days after opening. Made from pure argan gas and invented right here in Australia, WineSafe is a must for any wine lover and entertainer, having already protected over 10 million bottles of wine around the world. All it takes is a quick spray in your open bottle, seal it back up, and you have an extra peace of mind when it comes to savouring your wine. Try it for yourself and save 15% off with my code 2021-CARIS15, spelt C-H-A-R-I-S. Available to purchase at winesave.com.au. Happy sipping. No, I, I, comple- I actually completely understand that. I've never thought about it like that. But now you say that, it is, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I know I sent you some questions, but I have added a couple of extra ones. Go for so, um, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so I saw that you um, have a more sustainable approach and you don't use pesticides and you started doing that quite a while ago. Yeah. Um, what steps did you take when you were adopting a more sustainable approach? Like, Oh, look, the, the big issue down here to this process is the weather. Um, mm. the people don't quite understand, and it's interesting um, in your, one of the early questions when we were talking about bushfires, but the interesting thing about the Tamer Valley for a reasonably, you know, for a cool climate is that, you know, the average humidity 
rating in Tasmania over the summer is 66%, which isn't probably that much lower than Sydney. So the humidity is the big issue down here over the growing season. So we, we are susceptible to, relative to the season, we are susceptible to the moulds, the powdery mildew, downy mildew especially. So that that plays in my mind. I guess, you know, I was saying to someone the other day, I, I didn't study winemaking or viticulture. I'm a, I did wine marketing and Okay. Yeah, but I went to university late and probably would have studied one or the other two if I could be bothered, but I just wanted a mm-hmm. piece of paper and a job. So I did wine okay. marketing. So, And I think the great advantage of not studying these things is that you're willing to give stuff a go. Instead of thinking, oh, I know what's going to happen. I had no idea what was going to happen mm-hmm. when I started doing it, but I was willing to, you know, and that's sort of the way I look at things like planting Grunewald Lena and Trousseau and those things. It's about giving it a go, and if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. But, yeah, so there was no real hoops. I mean, we we live, our house is 10 metres from the first row of the vineyard. Um, I've got young children, and my wife and I just didn't want them growing up in a space full of chemicals. You know, we, do want, we did want them to eat the dirt, and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I would have let them eat the dirt if we'd been using fungicides but, or herbicides. Um, so, look, we work on a system, I guess, down here, the, the French loot resine, where you do everything for a reason. So mm. some seasons we do less. A season like this one, we've been on our, our sort of more normal process. So we're, we're very, you know, we're, we use two chemical sprays a year around Christmas time when the, generally the disease pressure is at its greatest. And then, and then we revert back to the basic sulphur copper sprays for the rest of the season. And then there's no additions in the winery other than sulphur. It's all about working with the land and with the environment to do the best we can with the minimal amount of inputs. But I do have mouths to feed and banks to pay. Yeah. What grape varieties are you currently growing and what seems to be the most popular, if there is a most popular one? Oh. Um, look, we grow... But- uh, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Grunewald, Lena, and Trousseau. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then we buy in a little bit of Pinot Gris um, for us. So, we're predominantly Pinot. So, Pinot's the best seller because that's the one we make the most of. Um, the Stony Rise Pinot, sort of, you know, majority of more than half of our production is Stony Rise Pinot. Mm-hmm. The other wines are made in smaller quantities. So, yeah, there's there's not sort of uh, anything in particular that stands out. We think all the varieties are suitable to the climate and our site. Do you have any plans in the work for 2021? After vintage? Yes. Um, not really. It'd be nice to go to P&V and have a beer with Mike at some point. Yeah. Maybe. No, not really. We're not really planning too much at the moment. I think that might be a bit of... No, we do have a little bit more land we can plant vineyard on, but that won't be this year. might be next year maybe. So, no, it's just uh, pretty much the business as usual for us. We'll get through vintage and it sort of stays pretty busy for us because we release a lot of wine quite early. So we sort of release four or five wines in September. So we battle through to get them finished and ready and bottled. And then by the time we've done all that, the grapes start, you know, we're pruning at the same time, the grapes start growing again and it's Groundhog Day. (laughs) But it'd be nice to do some stuff. Part of the plan for the new cellar door is that we've put in, we haven't, there's one thing that we haven't finished is the kitchen. So the plan is to put in a commercial hood 
and um, and some hot plates at sort of half a dozen times a year. We plan on inviting old friends from the industry on the mainland, especially down to cook for a weekend. So chefs from restaurants around Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, wherever. Oh, awesome. So I guess it'd be nice to finish that and maybe get some of them underway for next summer. So yeah, so that'd be one little thing we need to do to get the whole thing finished. And then we just uh, keep going, see how winter is. That's always the trick down here, you know. The support keeps going. It'll be a good one. Or if the borders open up, and people get fearful of travelling to Tasmania in winter, and it's the best time of the year to be here. The last time I visited was oh maybe like six seven years ago. But we went in. I'm trying to think. We def. I think we definitely went in winter. It was very cold anyway when we went. We went to yeah. Cradle Mountain. Yeah. See, there's another anomaly. Mm. people come to Tasmania and they go 1,200 metres up in the sky in the middle of summer yep. and can't work out why it's cold. Yes. But if they, were, <laughs> if they were 1,200 metres up in the French Alps, I'd think it was lovely. Well, they said international travel isn't probably happening until at least 2022. So yep. we've got a little bit while, a bit of a while yet for people to discover more of Australia. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, it's, um, I can't see us going any, I'm not sure that I'd be getting on a plane to go overseas at the moment. No, I definitely wouldn't. So, um, yeah, so it should be okay. It's just, uh, it's come, it'll be a bit of a local support thing and stuff and you just work your way through it. I mean, we're used to having them reasonably quiet. It's definitely changed. In the early days, we used to shut our cellar door for three months, but we, we stay open now. And what, as well, for people listening, when is your cellar door open? Yeah, we're open uh, Thursday to Monday through to Monday from, okay. from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Awesome. So a lot of time to visit. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, you know, it's quite a few down here opening up seven days again not many people did initially but more have now but we just like the idea of having a couple of days to sort of recoup and uh luke and do other things for herself and and sort of keep up to date with stuff so going back to when you mentioned mike from pmv merchants we actually had him on our last podcast and between <coughs> the wines i know i he, listened to it oh awesome yeah. um, and he bought and he bought along some of your wine which was yeah. amazing um and then he also bought some of the brian wines as well and i was gonna ask if you can tell me a little bit more about that <laughs> i guess it really brian's a, a something that uh, mike and pete and i put together as a way of remaining in contact a bit and making sure that we, you know, stayed in touch and, and got together every now and again. Obviously, with COVID, we're not doing that either. But, yeah, so it's just we buy – it's not very big. We buy a little bit of fruit uh, from around Tasmania mm-hmm. and uh, make three wines. And uh, really, it's about us being together and, and having fun. What wines are you drinking at the moment? Oh, all sorts of things, to be honest. Um, I quite often get Mike to send down a mixed dozen to me of things that – and not too weird. I'm not a weird. Yeah. I'm not a weird wine guy. Um, I, I like to try a lot of them, but I, I wouldn't. I don't want to try them every day. Um, yeah. I guess probably ninety five percent of the wine my wife and I drink is white. Um, we just find that we don't eat a lot of red meat. We really only drink wine if if um, if we're cooking and eating. We we don't. Yeah. Have, it's not really a beverage, and that's how I grew up. Was that it's not a beverage wine. Yeah. If, I need, if I needed beverage, I'd drink flavourless beer. Um, so yeah, we drink quite a bit of Riesling. Um, last night we opened a bottle of Austrian Gruner 
Um, a lot of Chablis because I can afford Chablis, but I can't afford white burgundy. But <laughs> I love the acidity of Ch- Chablis. Um, so, yeah, and then just, as I say, random purchases. Yeah, I've, I've, due to my history in the industry, I've got a lot of friends who are importers or distributors or whatever, and so, you know, I'll randomly say, oh, if I'm ordering some wine for them that I want to put in my cellar, I'll say, can you just mix me up 12 bottles of Australian wine or whatever and get them to send it down to me? And so it's a real random select, non-selection, I guess. There's no rhyme nor reason. There's reason to the things I buy to put in my cellar but not, yeah. not what we drink. I like that, I guess. It's, I'm trying to branch out a little bit. I am sort of someone that drinks a lot of rosé, um, but at yeah. the moment doing the podcast, I am trying to try some different ones and try some some ones that more mainly um, I'm not really a big fan of Chardonnay or Sav Blanc, but I'm trying to try some and kind of taste different ones and sort of branch out a little bit from just being a rosé drinker. Yeah, well, you need to move on to... Pinot Gris with skin contact. That can be your supplement for rosé. Okay, perfect. And then if you're trying, you know, try Sancerre instead of Sauvignon Blanc or you know, try it from where it comes from, I think, is always a nice place to start. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just try everything. Try everything. I think that's exactly. the best thing. You just get someone else. You go to a, your local shop. I've plugged Mike enough. Um, wherever you live, go to your local shop and don't choose anything. Tell the people what you like to drink and get them to choose it for you and that way you're, you're branching out your, your yeah. ideas. Yeah, that's actually a really good idea. I'll have to have to mm. try that. I, I mean, I am going back to the natural and the funky wines. I am trying a few of those as well. But like you said, some of them taste, some of them are great and then some of them just taste a little bit too weird. Yeah, I just I find that quite a lot of them I can have a glass of, but yeah. I'm probably never going to drink a bottle of it, and that yeah. to me defeats the purpose a bit of a product like that. But um, I'm sure that there's obviously a, you know a lot of interest and a lot of people out there that love them, and that's great. We don't you know, it goes back to why I don't drink my own wine all the time. Mm-hmm. We're, all, we're all allowed to do whatever we want, really. You know, fizz it up, yeah. have it warm, have it cold, <laughs> put everything in the fridge, whatever it is. It, put ice cubes in it doesn't really matter so going back to food and sort of like eat and having like wine as being what you have with your food and um, what's your favorite food and wine pairing mm. um i i guess going back to previously i love comte cheese with you know which i consider to be the for me the greatest cheese in the world <laughs> um and white crisp white saline wine from the jura I just think it's about, you know, I, I really like drinking Pinot Noir with tuna because I think they okay. go really well together or Pinot Noir and salmon because mm. I think there's enough flavour in those two fishes to, you know. And I think food and wine pairings all about, you know, doing it yourself rather than I think the days, I'm sure it's been said before, but the days of the old white wine with white meat and red wine with red meat are gone. Yes, definitely. And... uh there's a lot of people that don't eat meat. So then you've got to come up with, you know, some other way of doing it. So I think it's about enjoying it yourself, you know. I think food and wine pairing is just as important as we were talking about before as the company and the situation. Um, yeah. 
you know, the food and wine pairing is always going to be better if you're having fun with your friends than it is sitting on your own doing <laughs> it. So yeah. I think it's about experiment, a bit like choosing the wines you drink. You need to experiment and try the things that you like and you can't go past, you know, things like the, the obvious things which tend to be the wine, the, eating the food from the region that the wine comes from. So whether it's, mm. you know, um, Saturn and Foie Gras or whatever it is, there's, you know, food and wine pairings in Europe that we can do here with our own products, that, but it still um, is why those products were grown alongside each other. From your wines, I feel like this probably is quite a hard question, yeah. <laughs> asking you to pick favourites. Um, from your wines, what would you take to a dinner party, a barbecue and save for a rainy day? A dinner party, I guess, you know, going on my previous comment, uh, we would probably take Holloman Chardonnay along, which you tried before. Yes. Um, the barbecue would either be you know, Stony Rise Pinot Noir or our no-close skin contact Pinot Gris, the, the no-added sulphur wine. And then for the rainy day, look, anything for us that we make under the Holloman label is you know, made for cellaring, so whether depending on which which wine of those three that you like the most would be the one. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, we we keep the same amount of all of them every year. Um, so, it's a, yeah, that's that's the easiest way to answer that. Then I'm, I can get away with not picking a favourite for one of them. And last question, um, why should people visit Tasmania and its wineries, going back to people um, staying locally in Australia? It's funny, uh, if you uh, look at the statistics, most of the people that come to Tasmania are actually visiting wineries. So we don't actually yeah. have to convince them to do it because they're already doing it. Great. Yeah. Um, oh, look, I think... You know, one of the things people don't quite understand about Tasmania and and the grape industry or the the winemaking industry that is that you know we're considered well we're one geographical indicator, um, which is a bit silly considering we're very spread out. Yeah. Um, but it's there's a reason for that, and that's another podcast. But mm-hmm. um, is the the variance? You know, even though we're in the t- we're on we're in the Tamer Valley, just like Piper's Brook is. Piper's Brook's 45, 50 minutes away from me, okay. which, which is like driving from the Barossa to Clare. So they're very different places. And, and so the length and breadth of the, the island gives you an opportunity to try wines, you know, that's almost like driving, you know, around South Australia going to wine regions, but you can do it all in Tasmania. The varieties yeah, are different, but you can get a, a cross section of the industry from a drive around the place. Um, and look, there's some amazing people here doing amazing things. Um, they're all pretty friendly. Uh, <laughs> you, you can go from the big ones to the little ones, like anywhere else, I guess. But the scenery, you know, is uh, is amazing. And even the drive on along the West Tamer from Launceston to our place, I think, is totally under publicized it Mm-mm. i always say to people when new visitors that i drive down the road here driving along the river that if it was anywhere else in the world people would be going to this place just to do the drive so there's plenty of options and uh you know it's a pretty relaxed place and it never gets busy even when it is busy it's still mm. not still not busy so you know i'm 20 minutes from a half an hour from an airport and 20 minutes from a city and 
um, you know, I can actually be in Melbourne faster than I can be in Hobart. It's very convenient as well, being so close to the airport. Yeah, and for, you know, Tasmanians, half an hour away is miles. But, you know, I've lived in country South Australia and in Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide and half an hour is just down the road. Yeah, no, it really is. Mm. It used to take me, even back in the uh, 1994, it used to take me an hour to get from Bondi to Rosebury, which I think was about 12 kilometres. It's probably still does. It's probably even worse in this hour. It's worse now when I'm out with our distributors. Uh, You know, I used to, as a sales rep, would get around eight, well, on a good day, um, eight mm. or ten, eight or ten calls a day, and now we're lucky if we get six. It's just the way it is. But it is. It's amazing down here. You can, you know, you can be down at Greens Beach for a swim at four o'clock, and you can watch the sun go down from Dove Lake at Cradle Mountain mm. right straight after yeah. it. So, yeah. And also, thank you so much for giving me an insight into running Stony Rise, and also being my second podcast guest um, was, for this who was for this first? season. Um, Calabria, Emma Norbiato from Calabria Family Wines. Oh, okay, cool. In the in Riverland. Yep. Yeah, cool. Yes. So they were my first. Um, but yes, thank you so much. Um, hopefully, I can get to Tasmania soon. I would love to go back. It's definitely um on the list. Yeah. Do you have anything planned for this week, or when does your vintage start? We're about the middle of March, so basically mm-hmm. this week I've got a my last uh, foliage spray to put on. Yeah. And um, I will be uh, putting my nets on. We have to net the vineyard down here thanks to the English. Uh, because of the birds they introduce, they eat our grapes. Ah. I always say to people that I wish we'd, well, we were actually discovered by the French before the English, but I wish we'd been settled by the French because we would have eaten all the little birds by now. That's my next job. And then we have a little bit of a, there's probably a week or so where there's nothing major to do and then we start cleaning the winery and getting ready and then how long does uh, sorry i know i said we were finishing but no, some few right. questions um how long does the vintage season take for you guys uh, uh our home vineyard only takes about six or seven days to pick we're only eight okay. eight hectares um we yeah. do it slowly all our fruit sorting is done by our pickers so it's not very long but then some of the fruit that we buy in which isn't that much further down the river than us um, tends to be a couple of weeks later. So it's sort of, okay. it's sort of. I guess we're busy for about a month, and then, but the, we're probably down in the winery for six or eight weeks. Okay, awesome. So quite a On long time. Off. Yeah, yeah. It sort of it drags out more and more. I guess relative. It changes with the seasons, obviously. Um, you know, warm years, it all happens faster, and cool years, it happens more slowly. We don't manipulate the wines in the winery, so there's no heating or cooling. So okay. um, we're all nature-based. If, if it's hot, the ferments go faster. If it's cold, they go slower. Thank you so much again for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. No worries. Any time. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. I'll see you next week for another closer look into the wine industry. Now go and grab that glass of wine. You deserve it. <laughs>